This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, y'all, this is Monica. This is my third highlight reel, the final installment of my best of series, which is a three-parter on the multipolar world order with Ian Davis. Thank you so much for your patience while I put together some of these older shows. I hope you've enjoyed them the second time around, a little bit tightened up, and uh, I'm going to be back in the saddle next week and coming at you with some solo shows, some interviews, catching up on all the conversations I missed out on. I hope you enjoy this. Thanks for listening. So I've always wondered how we have this, what looks like East-West competition, what we looks like Western dominance. And now with Ukraine war and other events, some competition with China, it, it looks like there's this bipolar world reemerging, a Cold War reemerging. Yet I look behind the scenes and for decades we've been, we, uh, you know, you could start with Kissinger and Nixon or I don't know who, Rockefellers, have been feeding, say, technology or um, military, you know, important military uh, devices or ideas to the Chinese and, and given them a leg up and now we act like we're afraid of them. I cannot, I can never circle the square on how we can compete with them and also foster them at the same time. But I think that your uh, your series answers that question. And, and the answer I would say to jump to the punchline would be that regionalism is a stepping stone to global governance. Can, can uh, where'd I get that wrong? No, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, and that's always been uh, the idea. I mean, that, I mean, we can go back. I mean, it did, it, you can go back thousands of years if you like but i mean but the idea is to to have power structures that are that are manageable now in a world of 193 or you know an expanding number of countries that's a lot of different poles of potential conflict and potential um power plays and so forth and with nation states perhaps having their own regional interests and in, and it's difficult to impose uh, a system of, of, and so I think we need to draw a distinction here, a system of genuine global governance. We, we've had many, many attempts to establish global governance, for example, the United Nations, which, which you know, that, that started out as a public-private partnership in, after, in the post-war period with the, the Rockefellers were very much in, influential in bringing that together. But... It doesn't have, you know, it hasn't perhaps didn't have the teeth that they would have liked. So in order, so in order to impose genuine global, global governance, you've got this. You've got 193 factions, or you know, the members of the United, the United Nations, 190 whatever it is, countries that are that are in the assembly who are debating issues. Now the assembly doesn't really have any power, but that's a, that's a separate issue. But they've all got their own, they've all got their own interests. So that's quite a difficult system to manage. 
But if you can break them up into blocks, if you can if you can get them to align with each other into blocks, then you don't have to manage it. It's, you don't have to micromanage it. So I just want to clarify that is that. Uh, first of all, yes, I agree with you. I've seen, read about the origins of the UN. I think it was Alger Hiss in San Francisco, if I remember correctly. And they did, they, they toyed with the idea, and I think it was taxation and law enforcement that would be the real pillars of a world government. And they did not feel they could achieve that, and they didn't. And I have, over the years, looked back at when um, you know, you see Putin appealing to the UN and saying, like, the US is violating these treaties and why do they not recognize international law? And I'm always like, why is he appealing to that? Um, so it, and that they, and the UN sometimes actually does do the right thing. And I've always been totally puzzled by that. They actually respond sometimes to the minority or to smaller members. But then when you, when you um, introduce this concept of regionalism, it seems to me that then you get this, uh, the smaller people, the smaller parties to feel like they have an ally in the larger stage and they know that they're weak as individual countries, but they feel like, oh, if I have this block, then maybe all together we can stand up to this other block. And while that there may be real competition at the top of that block to give that credibility, all of a sudden you have what are called like non-aligned nations pretty much aligned with one leader or another. And there has to be a little bit of PSYOP kind of optics there of controlled opposition at the top, or at least nobody's really going to get anything done if he's not a leader who can, quote, compromise. So I think there are probably some genuine dynamics there. But to think of it this way, that it all plugs in like that, it's like Machiavellian, but it seems like the most likely scenario. The one thing that brings all this, that makes this make sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at, I mean, there are other advantages to doing it from a kind of economic perspective as well, which is something which is very, very much part of the kind of geopolitical and geoeconomic sort of strategy in the great, in Klaus Schwab and Thierry Malleret's book, The Great Reset. But also it pervades through the actual kind of Great Re Reset strategic plans and all that kind of thing as well. But, but if you, the, the idea as well is to break down economies into the global economy. Because if you're, in, if you're hoping to impose a system of control over the global economy, a, a genuine system of control over the global economy, then again, it works on a similar principle. And that's the, of breaking down the supply chains into more manageable chunks. So, very much a part of part of the opportunity that the World Economic Forum talk about is the break what what they call the breakdown of the globalization and that but they say that the dangerous and this is this is where the need for global governance comes from because in this in this tumultuous multipolar world that that where you've got these different poles emerging and the end of a global hegemon the breakdown of globalization causes conflicts and causes friction in markets. So when you get friction in markets, that's the perfect opportunity to come in and manage those markets. So that's, that, that is very much a big part, of, I would suggest, of what the plan is, if there is a plan. If you could look no, at okay, it. well, that, that actually talks to like three things I have from the first half of the part three article 
which can be find, found at iandavis.com, right? I-A-I-N-D-A-V-I-S.com. Yeah. Okay, so these articles, are well, we'll never cover it, well worth reading. So uh, three different things emerged from what you just said in my mind. Um, one is I, I'm puzzled by this idea of, or just want you, you to clarify, when you say it's more manageable to break it down into regions, I envision, I look at the World Economic Forum, I look at the Dow, Jones Industrial, and I just see global corporations who want to be the monopoly in their field. But what you're talking about is an oligopoly in the field so that there's more than one player on the world stage in each industry. Just to clarify, that is correct? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's... <laughs> so then there's also the, the fact that international finance is like it's like mycelium in a, in a, in a forest. It is, it is the network that pins the whole thing together. So international. Oh, I see. So BlackRock is what, or Black, you know, is one company. And yes, maybe there's going to be someone who competes with Salesforce in China. Yeah. But they're all plugging in to, yeah, that's true. Like BlackRock would because pretty much it, control the world then. Yeah. Because it's a compartmentalized then, hierarchical structure. Right. And then they don't have to write. It's, it's kind yeah. of like the modular thing that Rosa Quar used to talk about, about how like you need to make sure that every system is regular and works the exact same way so that you can monitor it from on high. There's no real, you know, it has to be more digital than um, analog because you can't give it special attention. But if you have three companies that operate to, they can plug into Larry Fink, all he needs is one guy in each place and it's just as good as him owning the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. And so another thing I want to say about this is, and so an element of that would be at the most basic level, the way Starbucks like destroys all mom and pop coffee shops, like the real threat is local competition. It's a real problem is that I think local individual companies that don't have to um, have like conglomerates who can actually just make the best coffee for that town. That's a real threat. And so what you want to do is because that you can't control and they suck up. I, I really feel like this is mostly just them sucking up every penny of surplus in the system anywhere. So it would take care of that, too. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic analogy, actually. I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> um, yeah, because, I mean, if you if you think about it, if, if your target is is monopoly, Right, your target is monopoly. So not just in one town, but in another town, in all the other towns. It's very difficult to convince the local customers not to go to the local to the local coffee shop. They've got their, you know, they've got they've got relationships with these people. They've got they love the coffee. You know, they've got a reason to go there. They might not even mind paying a bit more just to maintain those relationships and to just to maintain the, the, their local coffee store coffee shop so in order to get that to to for you to be able to stamp your authority on not only that coffee shop but all the other ones in similar position you need to introduce some sort of structural failure so if you yes. if you introduce yes. a structural failure then the coffee shops go down like dominoes and then you can come in and Yes, and and that's what happened in COVID. And you can also impose that artificially with um, draconian regulations, regulatory barriers to entry. But this leads me to the next issue question I had um, 
particular point from your the first half of part three is that you make one sentence that just really clarifies something I've been trying to articulate, that failed rules cry out for new rules. And that would explain what looks to me very manufactured failures of the supply chain and of democracy. And of course, of the pseudo pandemic, like they act like our health system doesn't, you know, or our immune system is not. I mean, that was manufactured as well. Mm. They are all the same. But I feel like the supply chain failures, you can get to the bottom of like, they seem preposterous when you analyze them. And the way democracy was totally working fine. And you have these agents provocateur, like, don't use the process, just turn tables over. And it's like, that's not how America was. We had that Bush Gore thing. And there was no, no protest even. Everyone just waited around and then grumbled. That was it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can look at the kind of the ideology beyond that. I mean, you can go back and look at people like Schumpeter and that for kind of creative destruction and all that 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 kind of idea. Yes, but 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 fundamentally, the idea, as you quite rightly pointed out, there is that in order to establish, uh, for want of a better expression, a new order, you have to do you have to degrade the old one. You have to degrade the old one because you because your objective is to get the people who are using the current order. So they're actively using it. So they've got no need to change something that is functioning for them. You know, if, for example, whether that's a political system, an economic system, a financial system, whatever it might be, if it's working, why do you need to reinvent the wheel? So in order to reinvent the wheel, you have to break the old wheel apart. And that, and that is precisely what they're doing on a global scale right. with with with. Uh, the you know what was I suppose whether I mean the the whole idea whether it's a unipolar world order or whether you want to call it the international rules based system or the kind of the 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 way that the the, the power balance has worked in the post really in the post Cold War but also in the post war period that is not the way of the future. That's not the envisaged future, and it never was the envisaged long-term future. So what they want to do now is smash that to pieces to bring in the new order, and the new order will be a redistributed balance of power because with that becomes a redistribution of everything from energy flows to currency to, to economics, everything. You distribute it so you've got a broader a broader market where you can then capitalize on the new markets, having already sucked the old markets dry. Okay. So you're creating new markets. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This also makes me think that you bring this out, and I remember it from report from Iron Mountain, you're right, like this is not new. It's just mm -hmm. clearly true. So I mean, that you could, you could look into the occult. A lot of people spend time doing that. Um, but this stuff was written down and it really is unfolding and it continues to. And one of the points there was that these problems must be global. They must be mm -hmm. global so that we can justify a global solution. And I think you, I actually said, I, I was speculating, like, what are things that could be global? 
And it's like climate change, whatever, pollution, which they don't focus on because they want to keep doing that, I think. Um, plague, aliens, and like religious fanaticism because religions are pretty global right now. Maybe that's the terrorism or whatever. They are, they are talking about aliens. Um, but but what they landed basically on the climate thing and the plague thing, I think you bring this out because humanity then is the problem. And then yeah. they can deindustrialize, they can push down, and then they justify one thing that I do believe, I, it seems like to me, is that in one way, like making this more, you were saying like broaden it, that would take from them if it didn't take from the people. So I would say, or from the masses, whatever. So I say they are actually trying to push the middle class down. And if you set up no expectation of surplus or savings or anything with just hand to mouth, like total safety net all the time, then there is no way that they can actually hang on to any of the surplus at the bottom. And so even if there's less surplus, it's way more, it's, it is entirely captured by the top. Is that too abstract, do you think? Am I going too far? No, not at all. If you look at things like we used in the analogy earlier of the mycelium for the, for the uh, economic, for finance, the flow of finance, that works in so many other parts of our society as well. So for example, the class structure. So traditionally, if you look at things like the, uh, the French Revolution for so, so forth, you know, you, you've got the, the either it's coming from the working class or it's coming from the middle class. But it's when the middle class become activated that you start to get social change. So that is when the people are, are controlling the process of social change. Well, if you want to dominate, you don't want the people to be to be in charge of social change you want to be leading the social change so what you need to do is level the playing field you don't want to have these these the ability of one group of people to lead society when really you only want the very very top to lead society so you need, you don't want a, an active functioning questioning Right. That's why, have the <laughs> that's why the progressive taxes are for that, in my opinion. Yeah. Progressive taxation, because as somebody who's like going up through the uh, the levels of, you know, the older you get, the higher your tax bracket, basically, it just absorbs so much more of the surplus that you have to keep working until you're just exhausted with life. And then you're not going to Washington when you're 65. You're just like, oh, thank God. Like, I'm just going to you know sit on the golf course or whatever. I just feel like they they do that intentionally because plus that's the professional class. That is, I always think of the French Revolution as that. It's like that bourgeoisie. It's like they they were the ones who had the money. They were the ones who had the education. They were the ones who could really be a threat and they were close to it. They could see it and they could see that the upper classes didn't deserve, like that ruling class didn't deserve that kind of grotesque opulence. Mm -hmm. And we have that now. And I really feel like that can only be achieved with the help of, uh, regulatory barriers to entry or other kind of systemic problems with just free markets and free trade, everything, they actually have to keep that from happening or some of that wealth will just settle back down and they have to be very active about keeping those barriers, I think. And I mean, again, I might be getting too abstract. So for if you take something like quantitative easing or something like that, so you, what are you basically doing? You're printing money out of thin air. You're just printing funny money. Which, in theory, you know, if you listen to people that talk about trickle-down economics and so forth, that should, should theoretically, that should, you know, enable a, a, a kind of a, an eventual distribution of wealth. 
but it never does because it always gets because they don't want that to happen. They don't want that to happen in you know, they don't want people to start being better off and start having kind of uh, a greater share of prosperity. Now, if the general level of prosperity goes up, that's fine because that's good for the people because the people will be happy with that. They've got better standard of education, better standard of healthcare, better, you know, infrastructure, that kind of thing. That's fine. They just don't want to have a greater share of it. So the more you produce the more that you have to siphon off through mechanisms like, for, for example, things like the derivatives market, where you could just throw money at it all day and it just disappears into this black hole of corruption. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it just never, I mean, it just absorbs the GDP of the planet many, many, many times over. So that's a way of, of increasing, quote unquote, growth, increasing wealth, but and broadly speaking, improving perhaps even the lives of people in terms of things that we just talked about, education system and so forth, but never actually giving them a greater share of that wealth. So what happens is if you look throughout history, if you even now, I mean, look at, look at recently. So if we take, for example, somewhere like, for example, China, China's had a, an economic miracle, you know, in, in many ways. I mean, I mean, a lot of the poverty has been alleviated. There's still poverty, like there is any everywhere else in the world, but a lot of poverty has been alleviated. There's a burgeoning middle class and so forth. But if you look at China from a wealth inequality perspective, the concentration of wealth at the top of society has never been greater. So while there's this, this, this kind of lifting, the concentration of and what comes with wealth, power, consolidation of power, consolidation of authority. Control so, of the institutions. Yes. Yeah, so that if you're gonna lift the if you're gonna lift the masses up, it is it has always been, and you can look throughout history, you can look where, wherever this has happened, wherever the masses benefit from a, a, a you know a general economic improvement or so or whatever it might be. The consolidation and the centralization of power and authority, whether it's overt or covert, always can increases. Always. I, I feel like the 10 every 10 years there's a crash. And because they then they bail out, like it just drives me crazy that every 10 years, you know, since I've been really thinking about it, there are these huge crashes and they really don't let these things go completely under. So the same people who usher in, I mean, the perfect example is Ben Bernanke got the Nobel Prize, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He, he's the yeah. reason we, this great reset like had to be so devastating. But I feel like a reset every 10 years, reset means to zero. And it's like, you've got that surplus and they're like, okay, you can raise your standard of living, but whatever's in the bank has got to go. Like, you know, we're going to take that. Well, I mean, if you look at the, the you know, the, some of the work of people like Professor Richard Werner and, uh, you know, if you look at kind of the stuff that John Titus has been talking about, and you know, that's the way that the system operates is, is you know, mechanisms like inflation. So, you know, obviously at the moment we're going through a very bad period of inflation. Inflation is a stealth tax. There's always been a stealth tax because we have this idea of trickle, trickle down. You know, the, when, the, when the money is first created, which causes inflation, the people that are the first adopters of that money, the people to get hold of it first, i.e. the financial markets, they get it at the value that it was that it was created. By the time it 
trickles down <laughs> to us, inflation has got hold of it, and that the, and the value the value of that money is depreciated by what, however many percent. In the yes. meantime, the assets that the people that bought that had that money in the first place, the 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 assets that they've have got with that money has gone up in value. So they win, 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 win. And that's why I have two things for you. That's why Keynes talked about sticky wages. Yeah, he he. Inflation is a way to keep people from uh, to lower wages without people realizing. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. Well, I mean, we've got a situation at the moment where the um, a lot has been made about the fact that the Transport and Workers Union and, and other 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 unions in the UK have been going on strike and talking about things like a seventeen percent pay rise. So everyone's going, oh, it's discussed. No one's ever had a 17% pay rise. But of course, it's not a 17% pay rise. Right. It's a, it's a, if you take the base rate of inflation, it's more like a 6% pay rise. And if from you, when? But yeah, but then if you then go back, if you then go back, you know, only not that far, just five or six years, even, even the pay rise that they're asking for is still not going to bring them back to parity to where they were six years ago. So, yeah, you and know, actually... You look at, so I have my little poem I'm going to tell you. Um, <laughs> roses are red, violets are blue, taxation is theft, inflation is too. <laughs> there you go, so a little Austrian poem. Very good. Uh, and if you go back to the 19th century, was I telling this last time? I might have. I was doing a, helping my second grader when he was young uh, do a little project where we were looking at the price of milk. And I said, look at the price. I don't know what, what the project was, but I made it about inflation. Um, the price of milk in 1800, the price of milk in 1900, and the price of milk in 2000. And it's hard to find, but if you looked at it, it was, ba I think it was like the same from 1800 to 1900. And then, wow. it, and then it was, you know, like many times, many times over yeah. the next 100 years. So and I looked, and at the same time that the price of milk was absolutely flat, wages went up during the 19th century. And I think that's when the powers that be were like, we got to stop this American thing because it's working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, you get that's you get things like the Cantillon effect and stuff like that, where, you, where, where well, basically it's ta all taxation stuff, but as you quite rightly say, inflation is the worst stealth tax of them all. And so that was that, when the Fed but, came. The Fed came in like 1913, I think, and that's yeah. when it all changed. So, so that's that's also is it a coincidence? I would suggest not. That that is also that that, that is also playing out now. The you know the the boom and bust cycle. Yeah. This is can anyone really point at the current situation and say that this is not deliberately engineered? You know, they, you know. I mean, it's it's obvious, isn't it? It's obviously deliberately engineered, right? We've had, you have we've to had, be blind on purpose. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've had we've had the obviously we've had the the what I would call the pseudo pandemic, and then we've got this conflict in Europe, the, the breakdown, the consequent claim for the need for the breakdown of supply chains, which has continued and then exacerbated with the conflict. That creates exactly the economic, what you know, well, Schumpeter's creative destruction. That's that. That is what it. That's what's happening. I must now that you bring it up. I must ask you about, and I believe this is in the beginning of part four. I, you point out something that has been driving me crazy. Also, the level of coordination on the COVID thing from Event Two Hundred One 
where the Chinese CDC was sitting shoulder to shoulder with the U.S. CDC. They were with the global corporations. They laid the whole thing out of exactly what was happening to the point where, based on Event 201, I called the day that the stock market hit bottom. It was like March something. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had had the money, I would have like whatever, been able to really profit on it because it was that day. They said 40%. It was 40%, very close to that. So they obviously unrolled this whole thing in lockstep. Nobody said, so you didn't see Putin saying like, this thing is, is manufactured. Um, we're the vaccine. People don't need vaccines for this, whatever. Nobody said that. Yet we now have... Um, Big tensions with China, but the Ukraine war, the Ukraine war, which looks very real like that is really yeah. looks real. But but how can parties that are so coordinated in one way on one day be so completely at odds later? It's hard to make that fit together. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that they are completely at odds. Uh it's not not even in the conflict. I mean, if we think about it, I mean, there are certain things that are unusual about the conflict. I would I would suggest, for one thing, Russia has had unopposed air dominance, un, unopposed air dominance in in Ukraine throughout the whole thing. Well, and, who would oppose and, it? And, well, no one exactly. There isn't anyone to oppose it, <laughs> right? So they've got they've got complete air command, and that was predictable. Yeah, right? but. I mean, the only people that could oppose it would be somebody like NATO, but they can't. Yeah, I mean, that would be a big, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so, so they, they must have seen that it. coming when they provoked this. Exactly, but they they haven't really used it. They haven't used it. They've got supposedly oh. the but they they got the best supposedly the best air defense systems in the world, and yet with using you know questionably pretty rubbish sometimes uh, Western cast off cheap. You know, uh, hmm. you know, missile systems. The the Ukrainians seem to be able to strike. Um, you know, places like the the DPR and the LPR, or not the the new, obviously Russian Federation republics, um, with relative ease. Why? When Russia's got the best air defenses in the world, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I mean, so I'm they're pulling saying, their punches. Russia is stage. You know, I, I don't, I don't think right. So this, this is the other. I was talking to somebody else about this the other day. The, the, the conflict in terms of its anti, in, in terms of the reasons why, for example, you know, the the people in the east following the Maidan coup definitely wanted to to. To do first initially defend themselves, and then there was the eight-year war, and then you know, so that there are deep-rooted, very real reasons why there would be an internal conflict in Ukraine, which has escalated into you know basically separatism and and the whole thing that's happening at the moment. And also, you can see from a Russian, uh, I guess, nationalist point of view. That they would that they would see that as a legitimate cause, you know, that there's a reason there to go in there and and basically save their fellow Russian. Yeah, Russians. I totally think that's true. Though. Yeah, basically save their fellow Russians and their you fellow Russians. You don't think Russians. that's true? Yeah, no, I think I think I think there is that nationalist aspect to it. Yeah, but the people that are managing the people that are managing things like the global economy that are. You know, as Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So if there's an opportunity to stick a, an oar in 
and to um, to make the situation worse, or to just sit back and allow things to. I mean, we recently heard comments from Merkel, the German's Germany's former chancellor, yeah. who's saying that Minsk was just some kind of setup, really, just so that they could just so that they could stall it for a while while Ukraine got an opportunity to arm. I mean, she says that now. I mean, whether that, I mean, I, I mean, I, I personally think that's a bit far fetched, but, but, but that's what she said. And they so, didn't, right? I mean, Ukraine I mean, wasn't really super well prepared, but anyway, go ahead. well, no, but I mean, the, the West was sending arms to Ukraine yes, yes, from yes. from the Maidan on until the, the Trump well, impeachment. You know, yeah, that seemed yeah. like a setup too. Like that seemed like a real setup. So the Minsk yeah, thing, yeah. she was saying was because I missed this. She said why she said Minsk was a setup, meaning. Um, that the West was just stalling Russia so that yeah, they so could she, prepare she, for the war. She basically said that you know everybody every, everybody realised that the, that war was likely and that their their task basically was to stall it for as long as possible to give Ukraine the opportunity to prepare. Basically, but then that you know the flip side of that. So what are you saying? Because Putin, what Putin, the Russians are sitting on the other side of that, and you know what are they? Just patsies. They don't know what's going on. They can't figure that out for themselves. I mean, this this is where it all starts to get, in my yeah. mind, very confusing. I, I haven't got an answer to this, by the way. This is I, well. I, I mean, Putin asked, had to wait. Putin was always pulling his punch. I think he had to wait until he could justify it to his own people. Is that not? Well, you had to yeah. wait until they kept provoking and kept provoking so, and kept so, provoking. So, so then you get into this. Well, if that's the case, so like, like, so he wants there to be an escalating conflict, so that he can then justify. No, no, I, mean, I think <laughs> no, no, I think. I mean, this is that. That's the thing. It's a little schizophrenic because I would think, just on the surface of it, he would he wanted to resolve it in a way that they would stop killing people in. Uh, so Hensk and Lugansk or however you pronounce that. Um, so that you would, they would stop killing those people and that they could have that kind of quasi-autonomous thing, which obviously wasn't happening. And when Russian's illegal as a language, you're really not going to be able to have self-governance. They had to like take that stuff away. And he probably knew it was never going to happen, but I assume that he couldn't just go pop off until it was so obvious that he could get support from his people that like they would beg him to save their um you know russian language brothers across the border that's how i read it and i'm not saying no, i mean yeah, i, I don't think putin's a hero i just felt like that seemed kind of straightforward but it also seemed like the west was absolutely provoking it by not fulfilling at the Minsk agreement and by saying, well, we're going to make Ukraine and Georgia or whatever enter NATO, like they were provoking. And I have a Rand Corporation document from 2019, which like weighs the costs and benefits of yeah, yeah, provocation. No, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, I think, um, so, I mean, yeah, there, we were talking earlier, how do these things just work? Well, yeah, I think so, you just, so think you just answered Ukraine? your own question. Yeah, yeah, because, <laughs> the, no, but like, no, because the COVID thing, they were so coordinated and they're still kind of coordinated. Yeah. They're still playing into that. And yet with the Ukraine thing, okay, and then I guess the punchline on the Ukraine thing that, that brings it, okay, so COVID going in makes it look like we all cooperate. And the way that they are, two things about the Ukraine thing, that they're pushing them to accelerate the CBDC uh, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that uh, I think 
it says in your article, and I think this is true, that Putin's still getting gas, even though the Nord Stream thing is is up in the air. He's still getting gas through Ukraine to Europe, which was the big thing. And it reminds me of World War II, where yeah. the money's money kept clearing. Regardless, Germany, UK, made the money flows, I believe, never stopped during World War II. Like 60 million people died. Yeah. No, nobody at the top really was really like, well, that's going too far. Like not letting the banks clear, that's going too far. So not letting the gas flow, like that's going too far. That that just shows a coordination at the top. But the CBDC thing is the real, like obvious one. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, that, that situation that was so gas, Gazprom had got uh, existing contracts that they needed to fulfill that were, they, they had a contractual dispute with, I can't remember, I think they're called Nafgas, Nafgas, the, the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian gas transit company that, that transits the, the gas through to Europe. So there was a contractual dispute that was going on separate to the conflict. This has nothing to do with the conflict. This, in fact, I think it even predated the, the conflict. So the contractual dispute was going on. Right. But then the war started. But then they resolved the contractual dispute, <laughs> right? And so the gas started flowing again. So that's just that's, that's, totally that's, separate. Yeah, like that's got nothing. But, but the point is Gazprom is Russian state-owned. Right. Right, so this is the Russian government yeah. supplying gas direct. But more to the point, once the gas was turned back on, even though it was in greatly reduced volumes, I mean, they were, it, was, it was about a sixth or about 10%. Well, no, it was a bit more. I think it was about 20% of what of what would normally go through. But nonetheless, EU customers were still buying it. So they're, they're providing weapons to Ukraine to fight the Russians. Russian soldiers are dying, but the Russian government is selling gas to the people that are killing or basically paying for their own troops to be killed. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so I mean, that just makes it, that shows, I hate to use the chessboard analogy because Q hijacked it, but I mean, that just shows that there's something happening at this level and it does happen. You know, people are dying. It does happen. Oh, God, yeah, people are dying. People it's horrendous. Cold. What's going on, yeah. Will people be cold this winter? I, 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 it's worse than that. I, I personally think, I mean, but this goes to, this is very much about sustainable development as well. I'm, I'm, it's a terrible thing to say, but but there are many people in Europe, the most vulnerable people, especially the old elderly people, the older people, are going to die. They're going to be killed by this. They're, they're not, and I, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to even think about numbers, but I mean, it's not un, it's not unreasonable to think that a lot of people are going to die. Like COVID did that. It's hard. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, a lot of people. I mean, the the the, the EU's kind of net zero type kind of commitment is called Repower EU. And they are trying to go towards an all renewable or 80% renewable by I think 2035 or 2030 or whatever it is, right? Now, there is no way that they can meet the energy requirements of the EU as a block with renewables in the, with the current state of technology. They just cannot do it. It's phys physically impossible. But in the drive to do that, they've shut down coal fire power stations. They've shut down. Oh, yeah, gas, here gas too. Power stations. Yeah. So now yeah. you've got situations in Germany, for example, 
In 2021, Germany was on the brink of blackouts and power shutdowns. You've got you've got uh, people, you know, being told the EU have warned their own citizens to expect energy rationing, oh. right? So this goes full circle back to where we first started this conversation. It is the breakdown of it is the creative destruction. It is the it's the deconstruction of the current system. And then what are you going to do? You smash the thing. You smash the thing that was working apart. And then yes. you say, but don't worry, we have a solution, which is yes. going to be the multipolar world order, a, a global synthetic hegemonic currency, and the new world order. I coined an expression, Ram Emanuel 2.0, where <laughs> if you don't have the crisis you need, <laughs> create yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So this is a Ram Emanuel 2.0 moment. Um, but one thing that it's what I suspected and it validated me to read it in your article is that the, not, not just oligarchs. So behind a lot of this stuff is oligarchy. So they, these are actual individuals who mm-hmm. have this uh, symbiotic relationship with the state, the way you described it, where the public money will go into private or semi-private companies where these guys are, um, you know, a handful, a hundred, whatever, of multi-billionaires who then put their money and influence back into promoting, let's call them state objectives. But like, I think we've gotten so fascism with this stuff that there Mm -hmm. really isn't a state. Like, how would you define a state? The state serves the corporations now or these oligarchs, not us. They're not a manifestation Mm -hmm. of our will or agency. And then, then because it's like that, you have people, um, elites, including political elites, not just business elites, whatever, or financial elites, who sell us out, as the way you put it, for a better seat at the table. Or even, I would say, just a, a piece of a, a you know, bigger piece of a, of a bigger pie or a bigger piece of a, of a smaller pie, whatever. There is that element of oligarchs, public-private. Like, how does that drive this? Because I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I don't talk about, and one thing that I kind of resist, and not, it's funny because I had a bit of a row with someone the other day about this, um, as I, I, I don't think that there is this one monolithic, overarching global conspiracy that you know that it's it, that there's going to be this this central power is dominant and that it can it can rule the world and that it's pulling all the pulling all the strings from the committee the of 300 let's the say commi- the committee of 300 or something you don't, like that you don't think that's the way it works that's not in the top of the pyramid i think i think there are other elements that we you might look at to say who is actually at the top of the pyramid and i don't think we know because the committee start- of 300 is a lot yeah, yeah, that, no, that is, that's more like not a conspiracy. You know, it's no, a conspiracy, no, no, it's not, no, it's I mean, not, it's not control. It's not control. I mean, that shows a good, you know, that kind of corporate development of the British East India Company and all that kind of thing. The way that that that, that moved into a new level of corporatism that is quite an interesting thing. But also, you can go back even further. You can go back to the Venetian bankers. You can go back to the to the kind of the the. Um, Black nobility, and you know, they, so there's many, many. Questions. No more. I don't know these. Things. I mean, I've heard them, but like, so there's many. Like, but the, I, I, I don't know. This is some. This is a field. Okay. This is something that I look. I'm looking at at the moment, but I don't. I don't know that much about it. But, but certainly, you know, you've got the. If you go, you can go all the way to back to the Phoenicians. 
if you're talking about how capital controls populations, but that's beside the point. I digress now. What, what, okay, were, we, okay. what were we talking about? Well, um, I was just saying that all of us are behind it, and you're saying like, yes, yeah, but... Yes, yeah, but it's more like... I, this is the way I perceive it. It's more like a global network that has got a, a, a shared trajectory. So the, um, the ambition the ambition is to establish fully functioning global governance, which has never been achieved before. Even though, you know, the Roman Empire might have thought it was in charge of the world, that's because it didn't know what the whole world, you know, I mean, you know, so, so it's, it's, this is the first time in human history that the potential for real global power has existed, but it hasn't been established yet. So therefore, you, you've got this network, which has got a history that goes back thousands of years. So you've got you've got this. Oh, okay. So it's got, not necessarily a, a monolithic conspiracy, but it is a network with a millennia's old history. Yeah, it's it's human. It's human nature. It's human nature, you know, where people are consolidating power and they're passing it on to their to their children, and they're creating. So, from a Chinese perspective, you see the rise and the fall of the dynasties. If you look at people that look at things called something called elite theory, where you look at look at the oligarchs. Uh, uh, I can't remember uh, what was his name, uh, Federico. I can't remember the guy's name, but he, but he used to talk about the cyclical nature of the oligarchy. So people come into it and they come, they go out of it. Fortunes change, you know. People, people that ro rose to the top, rise to the top of the markets, and, and are sitting there for 50, 60 years. You know, a change, a change in technology can depose them in the matter of a couple of years. So, so, so these things happen, and then you get this constant shift and this flux. But collectively, they're a network with shared interests. They have a shared interest, and their shared interest is, and always has been, to consolidate and centralize more power to themselves. Not because it suits, because it's in their interest. It's, it's, it's. It it's like external economies of scale, kind yeah. of like where. Yeah. It's if you've got the power base and you have a seat at the table, I mean, but there, how competitive do you think it is within the network? So this like, is why. Is any idiot trying to like <laughs> disrupt that by taking too much? Yeah, I mean, I think you see things like, I mean, there's an interesting thing that happened with the multi-billionaire head of Alibaba Group and, and, and um, Outpay and Tencent, Jack Jack uh, Ma, yeah. Jack Ma. So Jack Ma stuck his stuck his head above the parapet and started getting a bit bullshy about what right so 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 what happened you know he was taken to task and um his business was devalued by 76 billion dollars in one day so I so yeah, so fascinated by what happens to these Chinese billionaires when they get out of line. They disappear sometimes. Well, he did. He disappeared for three months, yeah. Oh, yeah, but he's not the only one. No, no, there's many, many I mean, there's tremendous cor corruption that has happened, you know. Travis in Kalanick, the guy who was the head of Uber, I they kept trying to get rid of him, kept trying to, and he wouldn't budge. He stood in the way of government surveillance. It was called Operation Greyball, and... His parents were in a horrible boating accident, and then he stepped down. And I was like, "That looks super fishy to me." And I think it was fishy, but I think that that's my example of like 
you've got this billionaire who just is not playing his role and yeah. he did not know, you know, that they show him the Zapruder film and they're like, that was us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe that's why he stayed quiet, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that, a, that, yeah, okay. But I mean, then, so, so what I'm trying it's to like say like a mob, that, yeah, okay. That's, right. Yeah, like, um, like a mob. Yeah, like a, that's a perfectly good. Why didn't I just say that? Would have been much easier. Yeah, no, I mean it's yeah, not yeah. original, but yeah, but, it's like a mob. So it's like yeah. You know, so yeah. you've got you've got Take people line. people vying for and organisations and groups yeah. vying. But and someone you know saying, well, how how can that work? Well, it works like any global corporation when you think about it. You get people at the middle management level; they're all backstabbing each other and trying to get scramble above and get above the next guy and then the next woman and then blah blah blah, and they're all trying to do this. Then you get boardroom, boardroom, you know, blowouts, and then you get people that are at the, then you get buyouts and mergers and acquisitions. You get all this kind of stuff happening, but no one in that whole system wants the corporation to fail. They're all working for the, for the benefit of the corporation because the corporation is where their bread and butter is. They might kill each other in the, you know, they yeah. might kill each other in a bar brawl, but. They'll they'll never disagree about the, the the priorities and the prior and that's that is what I'm talking about in terms of a global public private partnership. And that are they in a fortress or is there hope in that? Like where? Because I know that you're actually not black pilled, although you're very raw about the the power structure. What do you think is their weakness? Well. Well, they're not in charge. <laughs> is, is there, we, they, they know they're not in charge. I mean, look what's happened in China over the, uh, over the last few, the last week or so. The Chinese, the Chinese government, we, we have this image, and, and, and I think perhaps even the Chinese government itself has this image that it rules with an iron fist and, you know. But when, but when the people came together and said, no, we're not having it anymore, when we're not having it, now we look at that they're suddenly, I mean, it's difficult to judge this to what extent because they were already starting to back off from the COVID restrictions. But it looks like they're backing off more, they're being a bit more amenable, they're sort of giving a bit more. The reason that we have to have all this propaganda, the reason that we're swamped in propaganda it's because in order for any of this stuff to work, we have to be compliant. We have to go along with it. So they ha their, their prima facie purpose is to control us. Hence, things systems like technocracy have such appeal because it is about controlling us. It's a system designed to do nothing but control us. So, so controlling us is vital for their projects to go forward as they want them to. So the question is why? Why is it important? And the, the answer is, and it must be something that we, we, we have to wrap our heads around, is that if we don't go along with their ideas and their schemes and their plans, and if we don't listen to them, and if we decide we're going to do our own thing, there is nothing they can do about it. Their, pa their power is an illusion. Even economic power is an illusion. You know that we we can wrestle that 
Well, it's not that we can wrestle that power away. It doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> it only exists because we believe in it. Yeah, the consent of the governed in a way. And I will yeah. tell you the absolute clearest evidence of that, the clearest evidence is how the propaganda just has to be constant and they need you need always to have like a, a screen in your hand. Mm-hmm. It has, it's like... Um, if you have a dog that's out of control, like you've always got to pull it, you always have to pull it on the neck or whatever. Like you can't just, it'll never just heal. And I feel like that the constant propaganda is the tension on the leash that they just can't let up on it because they would, they put so much energy into it and it gets so ridiculous. But I mean, do you not agree like that is the evidence or is, you know, something else? No, no, I do agree. I do. That, that's, how it, that's how the system operates. It operates by controlling our beliefs, controlling our behaviour. It has to do, it has to operate that way. Hence, we get things like sustainable development, which is predicated upon our belief in something called the climate crisis. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it cannot function if we don't believe it. Right. If we don't believe it, why would we, you know, for example, things like paying increasingly high fuel prices. Right. Now, if you just say that the only reason that we're paying completely high fuel prices is because they want to price cars off the road, uh, public private transport off the road. They just want to get rid of it. Yeah. Which is which is written, by the way, which is is in in their policy documents. Right. So it's not like it's a secret. Right. But they won't an- announce that to the people because how would the people react? So instead, it, it needs to be a justification. It needs to be the breakdown of supply chains. It needs to be, and orchestrating the breakdown of supply chains to justify it. Um, you know, it needs to be the climate, you know, the, the premium that's put on it for climate change. It ne- there needs to be reasons because without the reasons, if you just came out and said, we are... We are socially engineering right. all of you, which is the truth. Yeah. We are being socially engineered. If they just said that, everyone would, nobody would go along with it, would they? Everyone would just go, right. oh, we're not doing it then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so that, that is their dilemma. That's their problem. They're not, they're not, they're not all powerful. That, that, is the, that is the great myth that yeah. if there's one thing that we can really shatter the, 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 the illusion. It is this notion that they are all powerful. They're not. When you see things like religion and, uh, yeah. you know, libertarian yeah. impulses, they constantly rear their ugly heads. I mean, yeah. maybe prophylactic gene therapy will change human nature somehow. I don't know, but exactly. so far, no good. <laughs> so, so are we getting to a stage where they can achieve with technology that with the, the yeah. things that they can, the, the, the transhumanist agenda? That's the question. Right. So if you can't if you can't control us, then literally just reprogram us. 